0: Angels of Fire, prologue. We return to the story of Sam Ahoy after he has come home to Alaska from his mission in South Africa. While in South Africa, he has met a young musician, Melody, whose life he saves during a train brawl. Now returning home, he brings Dawn, another faith-filled young woman he taught on his mission, whom he has fondly nicknamed Princess. Sam and Princess Mary and their twin daughters, Bonnie and Lisa, are now just one years old. Following a long illness and an (laughs) entangled relationship struggle, which nearly cost their marriage, Princess has gone through a period of estrangement from the church. In an effort to repent and find herself, she asks Sam to again call her by her given name, Dawn. Rhodesia, Africa Just then another rifle fired and someone started fighting in the hall. The train jolted as bodies grappled not far from their door. Men cursed, and the sound of blows echoed in the train. On impulse, Sam stood and quickly strode to the violins. May I, he asked. Melody nodded, and Sam retrieved one of the violin cases. He opened it to find an expensive instrument nearly packed in velvet, neatly packed in velvet. He picked it up and strummed the strings. The instrument was in perfect tune. It smelled of wax as he tucked it under his chin. He pulled the bow across the strings and made a long, solemn tone. Then he slowly began to play the only tune that came to his mind, Abide With Me, Tis Even Tide. He played slowly, carefully, his fingers unsure what to do next. He was grateful to find that even though his fingers may be unsure, his soul was not, and the music swelled within him, flowing out of that little violin. He played with feeling, and peace settled over him. Somewhere in the middle of the song, the brawl in the hallway stopped abruptly. Sam switched to another hymn and played with deep feeling. After two or three hymns, he stopped. The silence in the train was almost as if everything outside their door had ceased to exist. Even the crying in the adjacent cabin had stopped. From far away, a small, frightened voice called, Sing Amazing Grace. Sam loved that song. He played it with a sense of joy and was vaguely aware of voices singing in the distance. Marcia stood and received, no, retrieved the other cases he played. She lovingly lifted the instrument and tuned it quietly. Afterwards, she handed it to Melody, who tucked it under her chin. Sam began the second verse as Melody played a quiet harmony. It was the most beautiful thing he had ever heard. He watched her eyes close and felt the power of her love for the instrument she held. She played with great skill, her touch sure and masterful. She allowed the harmony to flow unrestrained. The complexity and unabashed beauty of her music made Sam's contribution seem rather amateurish. Yet her powerful music was like a full orchestration, the perfect accompaniment to Sam's simple melody. Another request came from outside the cabin. The name of the song was French and unfamiliar to Sam. Melody smiled and pulled the bow across the strings in quick, sure strokes. A joyful melody danced through the train, lifting hearts and causing toes to tap everywhere. After the tune capered to its conclusion, someone requested, I am a child of God. Sam knew the person must be a Latter-day Saint, and it warmed his heart. He lifted the bow and played it with a joyful heart. Melody listened carefully and joined him on the second verse, again quietly playing harmony. It was breathtakingly beautiful. The person who had made the request began to sing in a powerful tenor voice. The words of the precious hymn rolled through the train like a summer breeze. Peace settled upon them. Few even noticed the next few rifle shots. Sam and Melody certainly did not. All they heard was the music in their souls as it spilled from their strings. Salt Lake City, Utah. Sam waited nervously in the long hall below the Salt Lake Temple, his clothing entirely white, his heart raced like a chariot of fire, and his eyes continually pooled with tears. He had tried all his life to imagine this moment, this frightening celestial moment. He had rehearsed and played the image in his mind a thousand times, and each had been less in respect than what he felt now. He had imagined less fear, less nervousness, less love, less sheer joy. A rustle of skirts to him was like the parting of the veil, and he turned to see the heaving, heavenliest of all God's creations coming toward him in a wedding dress. Oh, how he strained to imprint that image in his mind, to remember every detail, every nuance of her beauty, the glow of her righteousness, the halo of love that surrounded her face. He wanted to be able to replay this moment every day of his life and remember the intensity of the love that was now filling his soul to overflowing. Surrounded by his mother, family, and friends, Princess walked toward him like a glorious preview of the second coming. Her dress was rich and full, entirely made of lace, with thousands of lace rosebuds in an intricate pattern. He marveled, wondered, and felt his heart race. She was lovelier than any dream mortal man could devise, awake or asleep, and she she came to him, of all people. He reached out to her and felt her silken hand slide into both of his. He pulled her to him and was immediately hindered by billowing lace. He laughed to himself for joy, happiness, and love and leaned forward to kiss her slightly. Her face was radiant. Her lips moved without making a sound. I love you, she whispered. It was the most perfect thing she could have said. Wales. Melody consulted the best solicitor she could find in their little town. The old barrister listened to her plight with interest as she explained through tears what had brought her to Wales and then England and of her struggle to obtain papers, then of her decision to purchase legality. I understand your decision and the plight that motivated it, he concluded after listening carefully. However, I am sorry to inform you that under English law, The truth of what has occurred is the controlling factor. That a law was broken, not why it was broken, is the rule of law. The magistrate will attempt to determine whether the charges are true, and if they are, since they are, there can be no defense. You will be found guilty of those charges and punished accordingly. He leaned back in his chair and pondered for a moment. Even though your motivation for doing what you did has no bearing upon your guilt, it may soften the ultimate punishment. I suspect, in the least, you will be fined and deported." Melody fell back into her chair, crushed and terrified. Her voice was frightened. How much fine? More than you possess, I'm sure. The purpose of the fine is to strip you of all your assets, plus enough to prohibit your return to England. That's the best case? What's the worst case? In the extreme, the court could find you guilty of all charges, including espionage, and sentence you to a very large fine, as much as twenty-five years in prison. Twenty-five years? But I haven't committed espionage. Then all you have to do is prove that you're innocent. How can I prove I'm innocent? Is there no presumption of innocence? He raised his chin as if the idea was repugnant to his thinking. The assumption is that you are guilty or you would not be accused. You yourself told me that you are guilty of the lesser crimes. God, help me, Melody whispered to nobody present. Indeed, God may be your best hope, the old gentleman replied pensively. Wasilla, Alaska Wasilla, Alaska Princess began to sob, her entire body shaking. She looked up at him, her eyes swollen but determined. I want to find my real self again, the woman that I know I am, the woman I can be. So there is a favor I must ask of you. Sam drew a ragged breath before continuing. Or she drew a ragged breath before continuing. Sam, I have let you and everyone in Alaska call me Princess. It's a sweet nickname, and I've been flattered by it, but really, I am not Princess. I need to find the real me. I want to be true to myself once again. She looked beseechingly into his eyes. Sam, I would like you to call me by my real name. I want you to call me by Dawn. Please, would you do that for me? Sam was stunned to silence. It was all more than he could assimilate and understand. His heart felt like someone had been playing crack the whip with his emotions, and he lost grip and been flung off into the thicket of thorns. But he could tell she was serious, in her introspection and resolved. He answered slowly, I guess I can try he said, looking at her hands. After all, you were Dawn when I first fell in love with you. His eyes fell on the family picture in the hallway, but it will take me a while. All of this will take some time, probably a long time. I know, thank you, she whispered. Then she slowly took him by the arm and escorted him to their room. They spent the whole night in one another's arms. They were together, apart, in love, hurting, so close, so far away. Neither of them slept. I'm going to go look in on the twins, Dawn said as she slipped a light robe over her nightgown. Sam had just opened his mouth to say that he was sure they were fine when they distinctly heard a door bang downstairs. Sam looked at Dawn and bolted from the room out onto the landing. The door to their room was directly at the top of the long spiral staircase. Below them, a massive front door was wide open, still moving ominously. Dawn stifled a scream. Sam ran down the hallway, barely ahead of her. The twins' door was open. Sam flipped on the light, his heart paralyzed by fear. Both beds were empty. On Bonnie's bed, a dozen stuffed animals had been arranged into a large twenty-two. Don screamed and ran from the room. Sam spun to follow and was slammed by the sound that seemed to shake the organs within his body. It took a few seconds to realize it was a report from a gun from inside his home. Chapter 1. The Grace of God "'Sam found himself nearly tripping over Don "'as he ran down the stairs toward the front door "'that was still swinging open. "'He bolted past her, taking the broad steps three at a time. "'He felt instant his feet touch the floor. "'Another gunshot rang out. "'The open door was just steps away "'when Sam heard a different sound. "'It was so quiet, so unobtrusive "'compared to the gunshot that nearly missed it. "'Don flew past him as she slid to a stop "'in her slippered feet "'and tore frantically toward the back of the house. "'A hundred paces separated him from the back of the house.' "'functionless rooms that had once seemed opulent "'now blurred past in agonizing slow motion. "'What he had heard was the throaty whine "'of a powerful snow machine. "'As he ran, shouts came to his hearing "'from the open front door behind him. "'Logic screamed to reverse his course, "'yet an impression kept his legs pumping "'with all the fury he possessed. "'He heard the gravelly voice of his hired bodyguard shouting, "'then Don's panicked voice, "'and the others coming from behind.' An engine raced just as he dashed through the laundry room, across the boot room, and out onto the back porch. Two black snow machines sat idling at the base of the porch. As Sam emerged from the house, at a hard run, two sinister-looking black, helmeted faces turned toward him. Still running, he realized that each rider had one of his daughters in his lap. The babies were still in their nightgowns, seemingly asleep, leaning back against the riders. A steely sword of panic pierced Sam's soul. They were too far away, and Sam knew he could not stop either machine, no matter what he did. Still running as fast as he had ever had in his life, he took the last step on the porch and leaped his arms wide toward the machines. The world went into slow motion. Sam saw the shiny, black, full-faced helmets turning slowly to watch him flying through the air. He saw their thumbs tighten on the throttles as the machines moved forward with a throaty roar. The distance between them seemed to close with agonizing slowness. The machines were moving away. Sam reached toward the nearest helmet. His fingers slapped the side of the black surface, then raked across the back of the second rider. He watched their heads turn toward him as he flew past them in the snow. Sam knew he had missed. He cried out just as the time, just as time, returned to normal speed, and he plowed hard into the deep, crusting snow, face first. A searing sense of failure tore through him, even in the sub-zero snow, and ice lacerated his face and arms. Dawn had run out the front door where she found Bart, their hired bodyguard standing on the porch, his gun drawn. A large black Suburban was backing down the lane at high speed, its headlights off. Bart fired once, then again. Dawn screamed, clapping her hands to her ears at that moment. The startling thought came to her. "'Where's Sam?' she cried as she slapped Bart on the shoulder. Bart's eyes rounded on her with fury. His mind was fully occupied by stopping the truck, and her words entered his consciousness as an annoying distraction. His large, athletic body tensed, and his eyes narrowed. What? he bellowed, looking out at her. Listen, Don cried, pointing toward their right. Bart's head reluctantly turned the direction she was pointing. The sound of a small, powerful engine screamed into the night like a cry of a banshee. They're not in the car, she cried, and began running through the deep snow with an ungraceful, long-legged lope. Bart immediately understood and prepped past dawn on her third step she rounded the end of the building to find herself standing directly in front of two black snow machines that were roaring toward him a part of his mind registered that sam was flailing through the air as one hit as he hit one driver with a blunt groan and flew off into the snow the second machine was a few feet ahead blasting toward bart at high speed without hesitation bart took two running steps toward him and jumped into the air his feet coiled underneath him Don rounded the building just in time to see Bart seemingly hovering in the air, both feet flashing forward to slam the chest of the second rider in a crushing blow. The rider flipped several times from the impact. Bart landed on his feet, bellowing an incomprehensible war cry. Both fists balled and coiled against his chest, quickly standing and reaching for his weapon. Don screamed. Sam rose to his knees with a cry on his lips, his face and arms raw and bloodied. Don ran after the now riderless machines as they coasted to a stop she found her daughter sleeping against the cowling of the machines a small harness holding them safely in pace this was no random kidnapping the kidnappers had been prepared even to the point of having diversion in the black truck a child-sized safety harness her cold fingers fumbled with the buckles she glanced up just as sam joined her and began working on the other harness they're still asleep, Sam said in amazement as he lifted Bonnie into his arms. He glanced behind them to see Bart holding a gun on the two kidnappers. Bart, I'll call 911 as soon as we get inside. We better hurry. These guys won't be out for long, Bart replied. Both men were stunned, just barely beginning to move. Bart's face was an odd mixture of hatred and icy calm. Sam's fears relaxed in that moment as Bart ran to the front of the house. John, Don gently lifted Lisa and laid her against her body. They must be drugged. They must be, Sam seethed. It makes me furious. It makes me grateful, Don replied soberly. They'll have no memory of this. Sam stared at her. I hadn't looked at it that way, he replied, and they all hurried toward the house. They had just reached the front door when two gunshots pierced the night. Both he and Don ran the remaining few steps to the open door and slammed it behind them. Seconds later, a snow machine roared into the night, following, followed shortly by two others. Sam picked up the phone and found no dial tone, just as Bart banged on the front door, his gait weary, his face sober. His face and chest were caked with powdery snow. "'What happened?' Don demanded as she pulled open the front door for him. He beat the snow from his body and stepped inside. "'There was a third rider in the woods,' Bart answered, his face ashen. "'The third guide fired at me. Fortunately, I hit the deck and he missed. But they got away. "'I'm lucky they didn't kill me. I just hadn't considered—' Sam shook his head. "'They were obviously prepared for anything. "'I tried to remove the keys from the snow machines but they so they couldn't escape, but there were no keys.' "'I'm so sorry I let you down,' the big man said gruffly. He sounded as if he were on the verge of tears. "'Bart,' Don turned to him. "'Don't you see this precious bundle in my arms?' "'You're cursing aside,' she inserted in a slightly scolding voice. "'You didn't let us down. You saved our babies.' "'Don's face softened into a weary smile. "'Besides, I'll never forget the image of you flying through the air "'just before you hit that man in the ugly black helmet. "'That image is seared into my brain forever,' he exclaimed.' Then added, ironically, martial arts has never interested me, but you may have just made me a convert. That was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Bart looked up sheepishly. You wouldn't say that if you had seen your husband flying through the air like a greenhorn cowboy doing a screaming swan dive on the backside of a bull hitting that guy. That was truly impressive. Sam blushed awkwardly, then bent down to kiss the sleeping angel in his arms over and over again. The police were unable to discover anything about the kidnappers. They concluded their investigation by suggesting that Stammen install a burglar alarm in his home. Sam thanked them for his advice and suppressed the urge to strangle them as they left. The next day, he quickly installed an elaborate security system, which included burglar bars on the lower story windows and steel-reinforced doors. Melody returned to the park after two days of tearful sulking the words of the barrister echoed in her mind like a sentence passed. Guilty, guilty, guilty. It was the cadence of doom, and it haunted her day and night. But the thought of her playing her violin once again brought peace to her soul and eventually drew her back into its welcoming embrace. The love and acceptance of her adoring fans brought Melody a small feeling of success that no global failure elsewhere in her life could erase. She arrived at the small white pavilion near noon, to find a gathering of about fifty people awaiting her arrival. When she walked through the crowd, they parted. A small murmur of happiness broke into spontaneous applause. Fresh and beautiful in a lacy white dress, long cascades of her glossy auburn hair were pulled back softly. A fountain of soft curls fell down her neck. She... Had she... Had she Gosmer wings upon her, oh, had she Gosmer wings upon her back, she would not have looked more angelic. She turned to face them, her violin cradled in her arm. Thank you, thank you so much. Her voice broke, and she bowed her head. You will notice that I have left my violin case closed. I don't want your kind gifts today. I just want to play for the joy of music, to thank you for your kindness and for the opportunity I've had to play for you these past months. Soft applause and many smiles answered these words. There is reason to believe that today will be my last public appearance before you. No, why? People called up at her. It was the moment that Theodore stepped through the crowd to the front of the gathering. Her eyes fell upon him. I can't explain. Forgive me, she said softly and raised her precious instrument to her cheek. A tear slid down her face and across the polished wood. The bow hovered above the strings as if unsure, then struck downward like a cobra. The air exploded with music, fierce and volatile. It was not music anyone had heard before, nor would they ever hear again. It was music of the soul, and Melody's soul was twisted in agony. Her music pounded angry fists against the fates that seemed to dominate her. It was the minute of rage evaporated into a cascade of runs, like honey falling from a silver spoon, the waterfall of tears tumbling in her heart. They rolled into a sweet melody that danced and wove magic into every soul who heard. Melody's eyes were closed, her chin raised, her body laboring as it coaxed the magic from the strings. Perspiration and tears dripped from her chin, again and again fire erupted, then was extinguished with love and faith, hope and sweet escape. Finally, a single note hovered in the afternoon air, steady, absolutely desolate, alone, yet unafraid. Then, in a heartbeat, it skipped joyfully to a conclusion, full of childlike happiness, hope and peace. Before anyone was prepared, the masterpiece had evaporated in the wind. Cries of Maestra, Maestra, Encore, Brava, ripped ripped through the air. Tearful faces gazed up at her with questioning eyes, wondering how such music had been unleashed. Melody opened her eyes as if unaware for the first time that anyone she had... Anyone, but she had seen her heart dancing... Huh? Okay melody opened her eyes as if aware for the first time that anyone but she had seen her heart dancing naked and unadorned in the music of her soul she blushed slightly and lowered her instrument a part of her mind searched for what she should play next there was nothing that could follow such music she returned her instrument to the case closed it slowly and stepped from the pavilion the applause finally died as her crowd reluctantly dispersed Many kind words and sad smiles bid her farewell. At last, only one admirer remained. Melody, that was breathtaking, he spoke after a stunned response. Melody looked up, startled. Theodore! His face was deeply concerned. What dark tragedy has pulled such beauty from you and left you so exhausted? he asked earnestly. And why will this be your last concert in the park? She looked down at her still trembling hands. I can't really say. Thank you but there's nothing anyone can do about it she said then she stepped sidestepped him and continued her escape from the park how do you know what i can't do at the very least i can listen he persistently he kindly he persisted kindly after her melody stopped to look back at him i'm just not sure my solicitor has told me not to speak of this to anyone solicitor is it that serious They were by the park bench. Theodore took her elbow insistently and motioned for her to sit. Melody hesitated, then gave up and sat down dejectedly. Tears began to slip silently down her face once again. She snubbed them away angrily with the back of her hand, her gloved hand. She refused to look up. Theodore sat beside her with his whole body turned toward her. He placed a hand on hers. "'Tell me what is happening,' he asked softly. "'Please.' There's nothing you can do about it. It would only drag you into something that you're not involved with. Please, I have powerful friends. Perhaps, Melody looked up at him. Her eyes pulled with tears. Suddenly, she found herself telling him much more than she had intended. She told him everything. Everything. When she finally finished, he stood, a look of determination on his face. Let me go check into this. When is your meeting with the next, Er, when is your next meeting with the solicitor? Next Tuesday. The hearing is still several weeks away. How can I reach you? Do you have a phone? Melody hesitated for a moment, then opened her case and tore a small corner from a concerto store. Score. Oh, (laughs) concerto score. Theodore fished a pen from his pocket, which she took to write something on the paper. She handed him the paper with questioning eyes. I'll talk to you in a day or two, he told her, slipping the paper into his overcoat. In the meantime, have faith. Melody looked at him hopelessly. "'In you? I'm grateful for your concern, but I hardly know you.' "'Then have faith in God. He won't let you down. "'As for me, I'll just make a few inquiries and let you know what I find.' "'Thank you,' she said weakly, failing to find comfort in his words. "'Theodore stood resolutely, smiled oddly, and left in a hurry. "'Melody watched him depart with detached amazement, "'as if he were living in a world much different from hers. "'What was that which she saw in his eyes? "'Anger? Betrayal? Fury?' She had expected none of those, except perhaps a vague concern or forced sorrow. This new revelation of strange behavior simply added to her confusion and also to her fear. Fear that he might somehow impale himself upon her trials, and fear that in doing so he might actually make her fate far worse. As her solicitor had strongly suggested, her guilt would only be amplified if she attempted by some circuitous route. Circuit, circuit circuitous that's a word i've never seen (laughs) circuitous route to escape justice theodore's heart was swelling with rage as he stomped away from her it had taken all his self-control to keep from screaming in rage at her revelation as she had related the long tale of her sad life fragments of conversations came to him with great force the first time her lips had formed the word rhodesia he had made the faithful connection he slipped into his car and Near the park and made an illegal U-turn, he left town a few miles later and sped into the countryside. Seventeen miles from town, he slowed and pulled up to a new-looking cobblestone lane. An elegant brick fence stretched as far as could as far as he could see in both directions. The lane led past a manicured hill and around a small lake. Across the lake, an elaborate English Tudor mansion sprawled amidst lush, formal gardens. Fountains and reflecting pools dotted the landscape. He pulled up to the front door and stepped out. He trotted to the door, which opened for his arrival. Good afternoon, Master Theodore, a butler in formal attire, greeted him pleasantly. What an unexpected pleasure. May I inform your uncle you have arrived? Yes, please, Alvin, and ask if I may speak with him immediately. Certainly, sir. Please make yourself at home. You know the way around. Thank you, Theodore said as he stepped into the sumptuous foyer. A massive stair began before him. He with gilded lions sitting upon the lentils, their heads resting upon paws with watchful eyes. The staircase rose halfway and split at a landing, each side gliding in opposite directions to a balcony high above. A massive crystal chandelier hung in the cavity between the stairs. It was a sight he had seen many times, one that he had loved and planned on calling his own someday. He was, after all, the eldest and most favored heir and destined to his family's wealth and title. Theodore's devotion to the seminary and the church was real and fervent but also a large part of his uncle's devotion to him it was uncle Tennyson's oft-stated desire that his heir should be an ordained minister which was what he had initially inter- which was what had initially interested Theodore in priestly pursuits Theodore's imminent ordination to the priesthood had elevated him above a host of cousins as their uncle's heir apparent it was a happy coincidence for Theodore that the yoke of the church suited him as at least as well as the idea of wealth and privilege. How is my favorite nephew? A voice boomed from his left. Theodore looked up. I am well, uncle. I am very well. And you? The same, the same. I still haven't found a way to live forever, so unfortunately, my boy, the same. Theodore laughed, though the subject was near and dear to his uncle's heart. It was a family joke of sorts. Uncle Tennyson descended the stairs, dressed in a silk smoking jacket with a wide black collar and a gold embroidered body. He was in his late seventies and still hale, though somewhat stooped. He commanded a sprawling empire that stretched far, almost most of Europe, his name universally honored and feared. He wore his full head of white hair to his shoulders and stubbornly resisted anyone's suggestion that he cut it. His entire demeanor manifested an air of arrogance, and his obsession with doing exactly as he pleased, no matter the consequence. Let the whole world step aside if it must. His uncle slipped a manicured hand through Theodore's arms and turned him back in the direction he had come. A look of affection softened his otherwise angular and age-cratered face. Come into my study. What brings you out to the country? It must be urgent. Theodore followed his uncle into the study, a room of dark words and green deep green (laughs) carpet. i can't talk today so sorry theodore followed his uncle into the study a room of dark woods and deep green carpet bookshelves of full two stories tall towered over them filled with ancient tomes uncle you know i love you theodore began in a warning voice his uncle waved him off with an impatient gesture and shake of his head He rolled his eyes as he sat in a plush red chair before the massive fireplace. I can see I had better sit down for this one, he quipped in mock gravity, a patronizing smile upon his face. Theodore sat opposite his uncle, in the edge of an identical chair, leaning forward. He forced his voice to be calm. i just pieced together several statements I remembered you making last weekend. His uncle smiled. About the spy from Rhodesia? It almost amazed Theodore how perceptive his uncle was. It was no wonder he had ruled a far-flung private empire with nothing but his brilliant analytical mind and his flawless memory. But Theodore was would not be deterred, even by admiration. Uncle, I met the person in question, and she's no spy. Tennyson waved his hand in dismissal. Of course not, but she is a person of unsavory background, and hardly fit company for one of your noble birth, he said forcefully, though still amiably. Theodore wagged his finger at his uncle. Are you playing matchmaker again? I thought you were going to stay out of my love life. I do stay out of it, he cried. Then a voice grew conspiratorial. Unless you start gravitating toward gutter tribe and street musicians. This particular street musician happens to be from a very old family from Devonshire. They were easily as wealthy as you until their father took his family to Rhodesia to colonize. They were "'About the time I was born. "'I'm aware of that, of course. "'He was later stripped of his lands and titles "'for treason against the crown. "'His treason has nothing more than loving his new land "'and being willing to give everything to possess it. "'He was a nobleman, and his family still is. "'Melody is a marvelous woman of great talent and depth. "'Melody. "'What an appropriate name for a street musician.' Tennyson's voice was rich with sarcasm. "'Uncle, you're being too haughty. "'She plays in the park for the love of music.' His uncle's eyes narrowed, And to make money, she makes money because she's a world-class musician and because our government denied her a visa and passport. And with that, any possibility of making a living. A lesser woman would have turned to something menial or prostitution. I tell you, she is a noble woman. Posh, she's a street musician. Uncle, if you met her, you'd be charmed and probably ask her to marry you herself. His uncle laughed heartily. You know I can never deny you. You hypnotize me even when you defy me. What do you want me to do? Theodore's mind relaxed, sensing the possibility of a win. I want you to stop her prosecution. It is what you started it. It was you who started it. Don't deny it. I do what I must to protect the kingdom, Tennyson said airily, then drew his face into an expression that was far more of a wolfish grin than a smile. What's in it for me? There's nothing you don't have, including my undying fealty. 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 (laughs) What are all these words? (laughs) Feel. Like loyal. Fealty. Okay. Theodore avowed with a regal wave of his hand from chin to knee. Tennyson grew serious. Theodore, I want you to marry in your class. I want you to possess all this he said with an expansive wave of both arms after i'm gone or even before i don't want you to sully my name by marrying beneath yourself i haven't decided to marry melody nor have we any remote have we even remotely discussed it but i must marry who i love uncle nonsense you must marry who you must for title and power then go wherever else you have to for love it is what must be Theodore did not want to engage his uncle in a debate about love and lust. He knew Tennyson to be well endowed with the latter, and agnostic about the former. Theodore thought it wise to not succumb to his uncle's clever bait. Then I will give you a challenge, he said upon a sudden inspiration. You? Challenging me? You grow bold in your cleric's collar, Tennyson said jo- jovially, and with an obvious nip of warning. Theodore leaned back in his chair, feigning an air of consonance he did not feel. Yes. A challenge even you can't resist. Intriguing. Go on. Take the woman I choose to accompany me on life's journey and elevate her to whatever status you feel is appropriate. Cold silence filled the room. Theodore promptly added, Or perhaps you haven't the power to raise, dear uncle, only to tear down. He said, his words tonal with jest, his eyes flashing with earnest. I can turn a potato into a princess if I desire, Tennyson asserted hotly. Theodore's voice voice remained impassive. Then I challenge you to do whatever you must to satisfy your lusts and leave my happiness to my discretion. I'm afraid if you destroy this fragile flower, I have found, I shall be forever moody and sullen when I'm around you, he pouted, only partly in jest. His uncle blustered uncharacteristically. Happiness has nothing to do with women, love, or discretion. It has only to do with power. Theodore stood slowly. Then I offer you the happiness... "'of using your power to restore my street musician "'to elevate her to the station "'you feel she must possess to remain in my circle. "'She didn't know anything of our involvement in her life, "'and I prefer that she does not.' "'His uncle took his chin in both fingers. "'Only the cracking of the fire in the grate "'interrupted the silence that lingered for a long moment. "'It is an intriguing challenge,' he said at last. "'You will do it, then?' "'You know I cannot say no to you,' uncle affirmed once again amiable. Still, there was a steely look in his eyes that conveyed strict warning. Theodore knew that he had walked very close to the edge, in fact, beyond the edge, and only Uncle's very real desire for his nephew's happiness, along with a consuming desire for an appropriate heir, had yanked Theodore back from the fatal fall. Theodore grinned. A fact I was counting on. He reached a hand out to touch his Uncle's shoulder. Uncle, I do thank you with all my heart. Posh, you just want my money. "'That, too,' Theodore laughed. "'Just get out of my house!' "'Yes, Uncle,' Theodore said, smiling broadly as he hurried to the door. "'Uncle Tennyson watched him until the butler was pulling open the door. "'Theodore,' he called across the large foyer, his voice echoing in the vast emptiness. "'Yes, Uncle?' "'Well played,' he said softly. "'Theodore bowed formally and left without a word. "'His heart sang as he sped back to town. "'Well played, indeed!' Had not the stakes been so high, he might have actually enjoyed it. Wielding power was indeed intoxicating. Fred and Connie Miller, Sam and Don's nearest neighbors, continued to grow in their love of the gospel and in their love of the Mahoys. Their interest in the gospel had begun in earnest many months before when their neighbors had wrapped their arms around Connie's wayward sister, Angelica, and offered their home for Angelica's missionary discussions. During the fifth discussion, the missionaries asked Angelica if she would like to be baptized after she had gotten her life in order. Angelica answered that she was already a member. An awkward moment of silence followed, while the missionary who had asked the question turned red. His companion poked him in the ribs with an elbow, and the room erupted into laughter. When solemnity returned, Sam realized that Fred had not laughed. Fred, Sam asked, is something troubling you? "'Yes,' he answered frankly. "'I'm grateful that Angelica is taking the missionary lessons and finding truth for herself, "'but I'm evidently the real non-member here, and nobody has bothered to ask me a single question.' "'There was a moment of stunned silence while everyone, including Fred, pondered the meaning of his complaint. "'One of the missionaries started to apologize and promised to include Fred in their gospel discussion, "'but Sam politely interrupted him, saying, "'Fred, would you like to be baptized?' "'Well, yes,' he almost shouted. "'Connie turned to him with an expression of total amazement.' Fred, she exclaimed, I had no idea you knew it was true. Fred fumbled with his hands. He looked directly at his wife. I watched a miracle take place in your life because of the gospel and now with Angelica. I'm stubborn, Connie, but I'm not stupid. I know something good when I see it, and I want to be part of it. I want to have these miracles a part of my life from now on. You, yes, I know it's true. He smiled happily at her and patted her good, and patted her good-naturedly don't look so amazed i'm sorry honey it's just that i will you i mean we never when (laughs) when would you like to be baptized sam asked interrupted connie stammering as soon as it can be arranged fred replied forcefully that would be tomorrow night the senior of the two missionaries replied fred merely nodded and smiled broadly true to his word fred was baptized the following evening for Sam and Dawn, the year following Fred's baptism passed in a whirl of family and business. These months were exciting and challenging. The business was expanding nicely into Washington State, requiring that Sam travel frequently to the lower 48, as it was commonly called by Alaskans. He had made some specific goals regarding the business and was ahead of schedule in achieving them. To make his stays in Washington more comfortable, Sam leased a condo in Seattle and hired a housekeeper and a cook and bought a car. No more rental cars, hotel rooms, and lonely meals and smoky restaurants. He felt quite pleased with himself. It was late September, and it was already snowed in Wasilla. In Seattle, the weather was cool and rainy with brief periods of sunshine. Sam found himself reluctant to return to the land of ice and snow. Somewhere on one of the backburners of his mind, he was brewing a plan to move his family to Seattle. He was just waiting for the opportune moment to spring the idea on Dawn. It was more a matter of... "'incorrectly reading his calendar when booking flights than anything else, "'but Sam's flight did not return to Anchorage until Sunday morning. "'It was only Friday afternoon and he would finish his business. "'His mind was pondering what to do when the phone rang in his condo. "'Did I remember correctly that you were not going back to Alaska until Sunday?' "'Winston's familiar voice asked without saying hello. "'Winston Allen was Sam's biggest client in Seattle and about his age. "'Sam enjoyed his company as well as doing business with him. "'That's right.' then come to dinner with lucy and me in typical form of his new friend it was not a request i'd be pleased to sam responded good i'll have the car pick you up around four o'clock then winston replied why so early we're taking my jet winston answered cryptically sam was somewhat startled although he shouldn't have been i didn't know you had a jet where are we going why not just let us surprise you winston replied with a laugh you're on Sam happily agreed. A limo arrived exactly at four o'clock and whisked Sam to a small airport. Winston and his wife Lucy met him beside a sleek business jet. Ah, this is impressive, Sam said enthusiastically. Winston shook Sam's hand and smiled. "I know," he replied. "I'm surprised you don't have one." Winston was a little older than Sam. His money was old, inherited from his great grandfather, who was first, was the first seafood retailer in Seattle in the eighteen nineties. Winston was a little over six feet tall and dashingly handsome. He had an easy charm that disarmed admirers of both, secta- both sexes. He wore his dark brown hair long, his mustache neatly trimmed, and his cowboy hat tilted back on his head. He even wore a cowboy hat with his tux. When one has as much money as Winston, people don't criticize. They wonder how they might look in a, how they might look in a cowboy hat and tux. Besides all this, Winston was a wizard with money and had quadrupled the family's already sizable fortune. His most ingratiating quality was that there was not even the smallest drop of arrogance in him. When he was involved in a conversation, the topic at hand was never Winston Allen. If it turned his way, he frankly, frankly answered whatever question had arisen and then turned the topic back to something or someone else. If Winston had a glaring f- fly, it was his brutal honesty— If one didn't really want to know the answer, they had best not ask him. Sam had been surprised more than once by Winston telling him that he was acting unwisely. Every time it had occurred, it had cost Winston money, but it had won him a friend in Sam Mahoy. Actually, owning a jet has never crossed my mind, Sam replied as he boarded, but this was definitely on his radar now. He was shown to a plush, white leather seat and buckled in by an attractive stewardess. Winston disappeared into the cabin. For a moment, Sam thought Winston was going to pilot the plane, but Winston returned and took a seat beside his wife Lucy and facing Sam. In just a few minutes, the engines whined to life and they were on their way. Sam didn't know where they were going until they began their descent. About two hours later, he looked out the window at the unmistakable glitz of the Las Vegas Strip. Why didn't you tell me we were heading for Las Vegas? Sam asked, a little irked at his friend. Because you wouldn't have come, Winston answered with a typical candor. You're probably right. I'm out of place here. I don't drink, I don't gamble, I don't go to burlesque shows, I don't... You don't eat, don't you? Oh, you do eat, don't you? Lucy interrupted with a charming smile. Of course, but Las Vegas has the most incredible dining in the world, Lucy continued. Believe me, I know. We're not going to corrupt you... We only blow a few quarters in the machines, and if it offends you, we won't even do that. We just love the lights, the glamour, and the food. We hoped you would too, she said patiently. Lucy was a slender, long-legged woman in her 30s with almost black hair. She wore a short black silk dress, high heels, and a beaming smile. Lucy was a drop-dead beauty. Not cute nor pretty, but beautiful. Part of her beauty was the fact that she felt beautiful, and even something to as minute as a tiny smile or blink of her eyes, was part of her one-woman pageantry. The only thing that made her performance perfectly acceptable was that she was doing it all for her husband, whom she clearly, openly adored. I'm sorry, I, I didn't mean to be prude, Sam said. You can't help it, Winston declared brusquely, then laughed at his own words. He was right as usual. Sam forced himself to lighten up. He was determined to not spoil the evening. Another limo took them to le village buffet inside the paris casino on the strip it wasn't the biggest casino in town but the buffet was world famous and to sam quite mind-boggling every form of fine food from prime rib to exotic delicacies was laid out in a seemingly endless array five separate stations presented cuisine from different french provinces lobster shrimp steak and a mind-numbing display of rich desserts stretched before them They spent over an hour relishing delicacies from all over the world. Even though Sam had dined in fine restaurants all over Europe, Africa, and throughout the States, he was fully impressed. It was an exquisite culinary experience. As they ate, Sam looked around at the casino restaurant. Everywhere he gazed, the visage of fantastic wealth was evident. The architecture was styled in French Renaissance massive crystal chandeliers hung from vaulted ceilings held aloft by gilded columns all around him were fantastic works of art stained glass windows and world-class beauty and incredible displays of exotic plants and flowers he wondered at the amount of money that had gone into all of the glitz and realized grimly that it had no doubt come from gambling we're going to dunk a few quarters winston said as he plopped his napkins on his plate want to come watch I suppose,' Sam replied. "'He had never really understood gambling, "'either the method nor the motivation to do it. "'And although he had no desire to learn, "'he thought he would be polite and tag along as to sit alone. "'Winston began pumping quarters into a machine "'whose display was a computer monitor. "'It made Sam wonder if they had programmed "'the computer inside honestly. "'After a few minutes, the machine lit up, "'played loud music, and then belched "'a bunch of quarters into a tray. "'Yahoo!' Winston cried. "'I just won twenty bucks!' His elation surprised Sam. Since Winston was a millionaire many times over, Sam had seen Winston drop a hundred dollars on a tip to an attentive or even just a pretty waitress. It wasn't the money, Sam decided. It was the thrill of beating the odds. Here, Winston said enthusiastically as he shoved a small bucket full of quarters into Sam's hand. Take that machine and pump quarters into it for me, would you? We're going to win big tonight. I can feel it. Winston, I told you I don't gamble. I know, you're not. It's it's my money, so it's my gamble. See, you're just helping me. Just take the machine there and put the silly quarters in it. If it pays off, I get the money since it's my quarters. So make yourself useful, Winston said, and turned his attention back to his own machine. Sam studied the big machine before him and decided it was harmless. He brushed aside an urging to walk away, pushed the quarter into the slot and pushed the handle. pulled the handle. He watched the four wheels spin and clink to a stop one by one. He wasn't sure why, but instead Two of the four matched, and his machine clanked out a couple of dollars in a noisy display of lights and coins. Hey, you're hot, Winston proclaimed enthusiastically. Sam hardly heard him. He scooped up the quarters, fed them back into the machine. Soon his bucket was empty, and he bought some quarters of his own. Every now and then, he won a few dollars, ignoring the overwhelming evidence of mounting losses. Sam felt like a world-class winner. When he finally hit the machine's limit and won $100, he was addicted. Sam felt heady, almost spiritual, watching the machine pump out so many quarters. It took what seemed like minutes for the machine to pay off as it whistled, flashed, and rang bells congratulating him as it pumped quarters at him. Sam had an odd feeling toward the machine, strangely akin to adoration. He scooped the quarters into buckets and immediately started pumping them all back in. By the time Winston and Lucy were ready to leave, Sam had graduated to the dollar machines and was still buying tokens they had to pry him away from the slot machine and force him to come home it didn't even occur to sam as he walked reluctantly away that even though he still had three buckets of quarters and one of dollar tokens he had lost over 500 dollars the other thing that was obscure to him was that he was solidly hooked sam returned to alaska thinking about gambling somewhere in his mind he realized it was wrong but also considered it harmless, a one-time event. However, the next time he returned to Washington State, Sam waited anxiously for Winston to invite him to Las Vegas. When it didn't occur, Sam called him. Winston happily agreed. This second trip, Sam spent the whole time learning blackjack. He lost thousands. In some odd way, it didn't seem to matter. The real thrill for him was in the act of gambling, not just the elusive hope of winning. Though winning money was the stated object and brought a fiery justification to his actions, in a way winning was almost undesirable because it brought the rush and risk of gambling to an immediate end. It took time to build it back up for another win. By the time he returned to Alaska a week later, Sam had not felt the spirit in two weeks and hadn't even noticed its absence. He felt a new spirit that seemed to replace the sweetness of the Holy Spirit with a glittering emotional high he found intoxicating and demanding. Even though he was still in the bishopric, it was beginning to feel almost time-consuming to go to church. The whisperings of the Holy Spirit tried to remind him that he was getting caught up in the allure, but his mind was good at making up excuses, and he ignored the invitation to listen. Months passed, and Sam covertly made many trips from Seattle to Las Vegas. Each succeeding experience served to strengthen the chairs of addiction that had quickly wrapped themselves around his soul. (laughs) Chains of addiction, not chairs. Didn't make sense. (laughs) Don noticed her husband's new demeanor and was concerned for him. When she asked him about it, Sam waved his hands dismissively and gave her a generic excuse. He could tell she didn't believe him, and he tried his best to pacify or ignore her queries. Sam, I have no idea why you're different, but I would be willing to bet $100 it's coming from something that you're doing in Seattle. You've changed and you're dragging me and the girls into it. You've been married, we have been married eight years, and I know you better than you think I do. You don't read the scriptures now, or pray like you used to, or speak of spiritual things, or play beautiful music. Sam hadn't realized he had stopped playing the piano that he used to love so well. He listened to his wife's firm denunciation of his behavior with annoyance at first, then with anger, then with increasing chagrin. He knew she was right. So did she. Dawn finished getting ready for bed and started turning down the covers. I married you as much for your spiritual greatness as for anything else. I don't mean to threaten you, darling, but I don't figure... If you don't figure out what's going on and end it immediately, I will pack up the girls and go live with your parents until you do, she warned him. Don, there's nothing going on, Sam lied. He just wanted her to not be angry with him. I'm just tired and need a change of pace. Don't you lie to me, Don warned him. You listen to me, Sam Mahoy. If you were systematically cutting off pieces of your body, do you think I wouldn't notice or that I wouldn't care? Do you think I would even believe if you repeatedly told me that nothing was wrong with your bleeding fingers and toes? Do you think I love you so little that I wouldn't do whatever it takes to get you to stop destroying yourself? Sam kept his eyes averted as Dawn continued. Well, you are slowly hacking off something more precious than body parts. I will not stand by and watch you. I love you too much to become a party to your self-destruction, either through my silence or through joining you in whatever it is you're doing. Either you get a grip on your life or I'm going to leave until you do. I love you too much to not use any tool at my disposal to wake you up, and that includes walking out that door. She turned the light off, and that was the end of the conversation. Sam sat by himself on a big sofa for most of the night. He alternately fought a terrifying fear of losing the person he loved most in this world, and losing the most psychologically stimulating thing he had ever found. For a few moments, he would hate her for attempting to manipulate him, then he would love her for her courage, then hate himself for stooping so low, then he'd start all over again. It was a maddening treadmill of vile emotions. Loud voices argued pervasively in his head pers- Yeah, um, that gambling was not breaking a commandment. It was harmless. He certainly had the money to lose. It was not a hardship on his family. So what difference did it make? He knew deep down it was wrong, but for Sam, this form of being wrong was so completely stimulating that it was. He had difficulty even considering abandoning it. After the emotional turmoil that they had been through, Sam could only hope that Don wouldn't actually leave him forever. She might make good on her threat and spend a few days with his parents, he reasoned, but she would not abandon him, would she? Sam reasoned he had offended himself far more than he probably had what? Okay, far more than he probably had his wife. He had betrayed no covenants, no moral laws or sacred trust, although he still felt vaguely unsure of her love. He told himself that this was just her way of opening his eyes. But Sam could not doubt that she did not respect him in his current state of spiritual decay, and that stung deeply. Sometime during that painful night, Sam found the remorse he had previously lacked. Finally, Don's rebuttal came irrelevant, and even his addiction became irrelevant. Only his relationship with the heavens mattered. Sam fell down on his knees and prayed earnestly. The heavens above him were stone and silent. He arose, feeling himself being buffeted. His heart was a confused garble of emotion, waves of rebellion, then then contrition. He fell again to his knees, each time begging his God more earnestly for forgiveness. This process repeated many times during the night. By the first morning light, he had arrived at the inglorious point of true repentance, a feeling completely in true repentance of feeling completely filthy. At 7 a.m., Sam called his landlord in Seattle and canceled his condo lease. He would never return there. He called his business contracts and informed them that they would be doing business by long-distance telephone from now on. When dawn arose, he sat her down and told her everything. Dawn listened quietly, nodding sadly, and occasionally sniffed back some tears. When he had finished laying out the pathway to his pollution, she stood up and came to sit beside him. Sam, Don began somewhat contritely. I've been thinking about last night, and I want to apologize for what I said. I was wrong to threaten you. Will you ever forgive me? It wasn't my place to judge you. Forgive you? Sam asked, incredulously. He was, in fact, grateful, not understanding the fact that she had pressured him. I am truly sorry. I said... What I did, I was wrong. She paused and added gently, No wife has that prerogative. Sam nodded but said nothing. Sam, after all we've been through, I would never leave you because we were fighting some internal battle or because I was disappointed with the direction of your life. She continued earnestly. Sam nodded again. Thanks for saying so. Dawn's mood lightened and she had laid her head on his shoulder. Is there anything I can do? Sam kissed the top of her head keep reminding me of how much I love you. Even better, I'm going to keep reminding you of how much you love the Lord, she replied, lifting her head to look at him. I have no illusions about who you love better. I've always known I was number two on your list, Samohoy. Shams shook his head in confusion, not entirely sure he was getting into more trouble, even as she spoke. Don's voice became teasing. There was a time when I was a tiny bit jealous. Now that I see what a scumbag you are when I move up the number one slot, I find I miss being number two. As a matter of fact, I don't think I could love you as much as I do if you actually dropped the Lord from your number one position. Sam gave her a wry smile. Just so there's no misunderstanding, she continued. You're number two on my list, too. She stood to leave and kissed him on the forehead. That evening, Sam felt the heavens open a tiny crack as he urgently sought spiritual healing. The power once again washed over him, and he heard these words, Prepare quickly, lest the trials come upon you and find you unprepared. It startled Sam so completely that he started a fast then and there. Nearly six months after his chance immersion into the seductive world of gambling, Sam finally emerged victorious. In the weeks and months that followed, his prayers slowly became a joy once again, and the gift of the Holy Spirit returned to his life. Sam had learned something about himself through all this. He learned that he could fall. Somehow, since childhood, Sam had always assumed he was rather invincible, almost spiritually indestructible. Sure, he knew he had made errors, and occasionally made prideful blunders, which took the Holy Spirit away for a day or two, but this was the first time that he had seen how easily he could be completely enticed away from righteousness. It frightened him to realize how vulnerable he really was. He printed this statement on several pieces of paper and hung them around his office. Only the grace of God separates me from temptations I am powerless to resist. Another time he penned this thought and pinned it up beside his desk. I have discovered I am for sale. I just keep the price so high no one but God can pay it. These little reminders helped him remember that he apparently did have a price and that only Christ could ensure that he did not sell out. He had seen that Given the right set of circumstances, he could be duped. He truly did believe his only salvation was in remembering his absolute vulnerability, and he pleaded with the Saviour to give him the strength and the grace to stay so far away from the edge that he would not be tempted to be on, not be tempted beyond his ability to resist. Now that Sam had finally embraced his weakness and utter dependence upon the Savior, it seemed to him as if spiritual sunshine had burst into his life in such glorious brightness that he almost needed celestial sunglasses. Yet, had he owned such a thing, he would never have considered using them. He basked in the thrill of spiritual oneness and in the perfect brightness of hope that he now felt. How he rejoiced in the days and weeks that followed! He had never experienced such an outpouring of the Spirit. Suddenly, not because of any element of self-discipline or self-mastery, but simply because he was, for the first time in his life, completely humble to the dust, Sam was infused with the Holy Ghost, and his soul shucked off every untoward attribute. He knew all of this to be a gift from God, a divine upgrading of his soul, a sweet endowment of a small measure of the stature of the fullness of the Master. Suddenly, Sam's faith in the Savior was far more absolute. His humility rekindled, his desires truly pure, his joy immense and utterly perfect. His mind was continuously pointed heavenward, and his every thought was a prayer. The desire for sin utterly departed, and his love of fellow man became heart-rendingly real. To his surprise, the world, with all its enticement and reward, was losing its appeal. His soul yearned for righteousness and rejoiced in glorious prayer. The scripture spoke peace to his soul, and all the world was colored with a celestial hue. He often woke at night, having dreamed of praying. He woke long, wrote long passages in his journal that would take him years to fully understand. He lived as one whose life had been purified in the furnace of extreme trial, and who had emerged triumphant. His joy was so profound that every moment his bosom burned with the Holy Ghost, and every spiritual thought brought the distinct impression that the veil was about to part and allow him into the presence of the Savior.